0: because we have a couple of new um, people here tonight, I want to just orient us a little bit. Um, as you well know, we're doing this, we're talking about the interpretation, Swami Kriyananda's interpretation of, the, of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. These are centuries old. Nobody quite knows how long ago they were written by the great sage Patanjali, whose Swami uh, master talks about him in Autobiography of a Yogi. When I refer to Master, I mean Yogananda. When I say Swamiji, I mean Kriyananda. Um, they have been countlessly interpreted and redefined and retranslated. And Yogananda, when he was living, gave a series of classes on the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, but he never wrote anything about them. They're considered the classic text of yoga. Swami Kriyananda, this was the next to the last book he wrote, I think, before he passed away at the age of 86. So last year he. This was published in 2012. Um, he felt when he started working with this that almost every translation he read of the sutras was worse than the one before, that enormous layers of confusion had begun to just come into it. And so he not only re-commented on it, he retranslated it. The sutras are extremely terse and what it really describes is it describes the whole process of the spiritual life, but not in a very user-friendly manner. (laughs) It's more just like he gives you the basic concepts and then you have to really feel deeply, um, draw out from those ideas. But because Patanjali himself was considered to be a fully self-realized master, because Swami Kriyananda learned what the meaning of Patanjali's aphorisms is from another master, which was Yogananda, and Swamiji himself as a a great um, spiritual person applied his own understanding to it. You have, as I've explained it before, you have the convergence of three great souls in this book. So it, it is really quite a powerful book. And the power of it is both in the concepts and then just in some underlying vibration. But for those of you who are just stepping into this class tonight, first of all, I can send you back to the internet. This is the 18th class, and you can start over at the beginning, because there is a sequence building here, but each aphorism just deals with some small aspect of it. I say that because if you walk into one class, tonight we are going to talk, talk about <clears throat> moodiness, despair, nervous agitation, and agitated breathing, which as an introduction to the spiritual path, might not be exactly what you want. But what we are finishing is a section of him explaining um, what the nature of divinity is and why it is that we can't perceive it. And he has just been talking about the certain obstacles to spiritual growth, and now he's talking about attitudes of mind, as he puts it, that accompany them. So, with that uh, introduction, for the benefit of those who are starting with us tonight we'll go forward. But before I go forward, I always ask if anyone, which is, means Tom, has any questions tonight. <laughs> there was a Steve Martin movie that I really enjoyed where he was playing this extremely egotistical film director and he was talking to his crew and he was trying to sort of be a good leader. And, but he was saying, and when we, and by we, I mean me. Is that put it? <laughs> I've always loved that. <laughs> So, does anyone have any questions? Do you have any questions, Joe? Well,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're obligated to after my introduction. Okay.
1: I'm sure this fits in somehow. Okay. I, just last night, read a heartbreaking news story about a veteran of our recent, one of our recent wars. Young man, 20. Two or something, goes off to war with all the usual youthful gusto and comes okay. back uh with no legs, one arm, completely paralyzed, mm-hmm. still alive. And um, you know, it brings up so much in in my mind about well uh why does something like that happen?
0: You know this is right in the middle of this sutra. It's called the word despair.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Why does... Okay. So you just... you didn't well, talk. I just wanted
1: you to talk about it. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. You can pray for him, but there's just this question of like, why or... Why does... You know, no, why I is completely
0: going understand, going? actually. Don't get too far out to the side because then my... Somebody needs you, then the, No, that's right, The film gets a little... Skewed because I have to look so far to the side. Thank you, Stephen. You can sit on the floor, but um, uh, it's very interesting that you asked that question because I have actually been contemplating exactly that a great deal lately, just exactly that same thought. Um, The more one becomes spiritually attuned, it's not merely that you become more conscious of divine bliss, you just become more conscious of everything. And the less deeply identified we are with our own individual unique life experience, the more we actually can both experience, we perceive, and we identify with other people's life experience. So whereas in the past you might just be able to sail by it because other people's suffering is not real to you, the more uh, expanded your awareness, the more their suffering affects you. There's a story about Ramakrishna of uh, one someone in the ashram. There was a cat in the ashram, and the cook, it was the cook, and the cook wanted the cat out of the kitchen, and he beat at him with a spoon and to chase the cat out. And then when he went to see the guru, Ramakrishna had welts on his back. And he was a tough man, and he said, Who did this to you, Master, all... I'll show him for treating you like that. And Ramakrishna said, Well, actually, it was you. That just literally, when he struck the cat, the welts came on the back of the master. So you can only imagine from that how um, integrated Ramakrishna's consciousness was with everything around him. You remember when, was it Lahiri Mahashaya? I can never remember that it was Lahiri Mahashaya or Nandamoy Ma. I think it was Lahiri Mahashaya who suddenly cried out in despair, people off the seas of Japan, off the coast of Japan are drowning. And he, I mean, he's sitting in his living room in Varanasi and suddenly he's, he's drowning with all these people in Japan. Um, so part of what I'm saying is when you become more aware, you become more aware. And one of the reasons that people stop meditating and don't really want to stay on the spiritual path is because when you become more aware you become more aware of everything and many people who take who drink and take drugs and watch television and overeat and all the things that we do to make ourselves less aware are just they move out into the world and it's just too painful and they come right back in and sometimes it's the pain of their own experience and sometimes it's the pain of that experience now having said that Um, I don't just say, well, there you have it. Like, Lucy, five cents, please. You're no different than anyone else. Um, I think it's one of the most profound challenges of the spiritual path is, is really to be able to look at the world that God created and not flinch from it and not get pushed over the edge of sadness and despair. I mean, you're just starting... You read about it on the news. What if you're walking down the street? What if it happens to you? What if it happens to Susan? I mean, it could happen. Anything could happen at any point. There's tragedies left, right, and center. And if it hasn't touched us personally, well, just wait a lifetime or two or wait till the end of this one. You know, it just does happen. And that's not cynical. See, that's the hard part. Sometimes people get upset with me. Don't talk so much about the unhappiness of life. Well, I feel like it's all of a piece. You can't shrink from any part of it. So it becomes um, a tremendous challenge to faith. And, and, and this is 100% right in the sutra that we're in right now, where it talks about accompanying the obstacles to spiritual life, and the obstacles we talked about last time, dullness, disease, doubt, carelessness, backsliding, all of that. Accompanying these obstacles. Once we and so, Swami explains: Allow our consciousness to to fall to a lower level, then comes moodiness and despair, particularly. And you know, we think of moodiness as depression, but moodiness is also depression over the condition of the world. And you know, many people assume that as a persona, their persona. personas, you know, how can, when you know, when they're dying in the Sudan, how can you possibly enjoy yourself in Palo Alto? And there's this sort of compelling urge that because suffering is somewhere, suffering must be everywhere. And there's a certain... You can persuade yourself of that. It's all about your level of consciousness. So we have this bet. There's several challenging points to that. This is, this is something I learned when we would take Americans to India um, in 1987, 86, 86. Jidambard knows because he went with us. Yeah, he's in nineteen eighty six was when we took our first uh, group of Americans to India. Our, we, my husband David and Durgan Vadura, our friends, four of us. I went on that first trip of the four leaders. Only one of us had ever been to India, so it was a little bit of creative um, leading. But the fun of it was we were all in it together, and that was before we had any work in India, and, and before almost no one at Ananda had ever been to India, even though we all had this relationship of samskars with that culture, a very deep level. But of course, especially then, India's been accelerating in its economic development, but that was 20 more, more than 25 years ago, or whatever it is. Um, and enormous poverty just enormous poverty and just pictures you've never seen before. We stayed in five-star hotels because at that point there was nothing. There was five-star and one-star, so we stayed at the top. We're at the Oberoi Hotel in Calcutta, which, forgive my passion for luxury, is still my favorite hotel in the whole world. And we were up there and people were in these gorgeous marble bathroom, incredibly gorgeous rooms. And you'd look out your window and you could, we were there for several days, you could watch the family that lived on the sidewalk. So you became very well acquainted with the families that were living on the sidewalk down below your window, and then you'd go back into your air-conditioning room and collapse on your pillows and go into your marble bathroom. This, like, none none of us in America had ever stayed in any place like that. But I began to observe that people's... And then it was more than that, walking by the the Ganges, being besieged by um, beggars, besieged by... uh, people selling trinkets who just, you know, were desperate for your money, and just lepers. would, pardon, what's the word? Lepers. And lepers, and, you know, ba- people holding limp babies, and just the whole thing. You you have the picture. Third world, developing world, reality. And I observed that people were able to accept it or freak out. And it was like, there was a lot of sort of, it was it tended to polarize a little bit according to a criteria that I only really became aware of after doing several pilgrimages. Those people who understood that the spiritual path requires great determination, great willpower, and often you have to work very hard against trials and troubles. And I don't mean that they had a negative view of life at all, but they just understood that the spiritual life has a certain cost. And that, you know, I have, I'm have. i trying now to work in the opposite direction from karmic, karmic patterns I've set up, and it's, I'm going to have to pull hard against that. And not everything I've done in the past is going to bring me ease and fortune in the present. And so karmic trials are going to fall on me. And insofar as individuals have have... Have had really understood that and overcome any sense of rebellion against that. And this is... I'm taking this right out of our sutra today. It's a right-on question, which is to realize that um, that the soul knows what it needs and that it's grateful for everything that happens to it. In other words... Because I suffer, because difficult challenges come to me, I hesitate to use the word suffer because it sets up a certain mindset. It's not suffering that's positive. The the positive thing is, wow, things don't always work according to my desires because I have past karma and I have things I have to learn. So I have to rise up and face challenges and I have to overcome obstacles. I can't just expect it to all open for me. And insofar as one has integrated into one's own life the understanding that this is a good thing. That even if it's difficult in the moment, that this is a really good thing. Because unless I am challenged to become more than than I am, to believe in God on a deeper level, to have willpower and devotion and determination on a deeper level, I'll never grow. And so when we really accept that in our own lives... When you see other people going through that exact same experience, the first thought that comes to your mind is not, oh, that poor person, what an awful thing is happening to them. And all this anxiety and, and fear and nervousness about the challenge they're having to face. See, that's how the masters can just look at an, a person in an extremely difficult situation, and, and he doesn't rebel against it. He knows that, well, that's good. Look at that. That's good look at that man. You know, he's got a really tough life this time. What an opportunity he has. What a great chance to work out bad karma. My, my, my. He must have done something really tough. And you don't even mean that in a bad way. It's like now you really get to face it. And in the Festival of Light, the second stage in the Festival of Light is when the the little bird rebels. God says, this is the reality of creation. This is your duty. But the little bird says, hey, I have a better idea. And this is the second stage, and this is called the revolt. And it's, it's extremely, extremely important teaching, the revolt. Because the revolt says, oh, no, 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 actually, all the teachings of the ages are not really true. I have an idea of how it really should work. And that's how we live. This is happening to me. This is my karma. This is appropriate destiny. But no, 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 no. I don't think so. I think this is wrong. And, we, and instead of courageously embracing and stepping forward with enthusiasm into the challenge of the moment, we, re, we rebel against reality. And as long as you're rebelling against reality, then when you see reality, you're agitated and your breath gets agitated. You fall into a state of nervous agitation. So you see this vet, vet who either he did some really bad things in the past and it's catching up with him. I mean, what do you think happens to all those people who do really terrible things to others and then die without getting caught? What do you think happens to them? I mean, they don't just get away scot-free. I mean, that's kind of a tough thing to say. And so, however, that karma does catch up with them. But it's not like you think, oh, he must be an evil man. You just think, wow, look at that. He's really getting to face a really tough situation. You can always turn it positive. What a great opportunity for him to learn something he obviously didn't know. And so now he gets to learn it. If he's suffering, you can just take the long view, which is, well, maybe he's going to have to go down before he comes up. But he's, he's on... What I repeat to myself also from Sunday service, he's on the soul's long journey. And much of, many of us don't have such dramatic karma, but pretty much everyone gets pushed to the wall. If you're not getting pushed to the wall, you need to put up more energy. <laughs> I don't mean you have to suffer. I just mean you need to feel that you're not taking a free ride, that if, it's not, if your life is not really really happening for you, then you need to get a little more engaged in your life to make it happen for you. And sometimes I I like it as a challenge to just look right into hard situations. Instead of getting afraid of it, I just I try to look right at it. Try to say, I saw a man today who was enormously fat, so fat, you rarely see such a person actually walking. And I was wondering if perhaps he used to be fatter and now because he's of this size he can walk around. But he had a very nice face, and you could see the anguish in his eyes, because, as someone said to me, there are many sins worse than overeating, but if your your sin, so to speak, if your delusion is overeating, everybody knows it, because he walks around in this huge body. I mean, he could be a murderer, and you wouldn't know it, but this man walks around in this huge body, and I just tried to just, like, really greet him and not just shrink away or not look at him as a freak, because he was so big, he was like a freak. But I I thought to myself, look at you, you're actually out on the street. You know, I was commending him for being out on the street. You can turn every situation positive if you try. Well, this man is now getting the opportunity to learn really tough lessons, and he will have a choice. He can go into despair, which is what accompanies obstacles to spiritual growth. And despair often ends in suicide. And despair ends in suicide because people do not know that at the heart of everything there is God's own good truth. So when you or I also flinch at someone else's karma, that's as much a sign of our lack of faith in God as when we flinch at our own. That's why I was saying I began to see on those pilgrimage trips when people were confronted with developing world realities that we don't see if you only live in America and don't leave the Western the economic zone, um, and when you panic at the sight of that, you're really panicking on a... It's, it's a metaphysical question you're panicking over. Is karma fair? Is everyone really a child of God? Is, is the divinity really looking after everyone? Is there hope for all souls? And really, is their situation so bad merely because it's different than mine? What's so great about the way we live in the West? I mean, one of my very westernized Indian friends said he would never live in America, ever. He's, and this was, he, these were his words. No matter how much you people have, you are never satisfied. And I had to think, whoa, that's a pretty true statement, isn't it? I mean, he just looked, and he, he, was a, had, he did business with Americans all the time. And he was like, more Western than I am in certain ways, but he wasn't Western in that way. And he just watched it, and he just, just shook his head. What is wrong with you people? So who's to say? That's the other side of it. Who's to say? I think it's good karma to have a full belly and to not have to struggle like that. But he Swami says in here, even if you starve to death, you know. Look at. I mean, just think of it, just very simply like this. I've been reading this book, which I I probably don't know how much more of it I can stand which is about Wall Street and about the derivatives market and all that happened. Whoa! Greed and disregard for human welfare on a scale that you can hardly imagine. And nobody would look at those jet-setting wealthy people as having bad karma, but I'm scared for them. Where are they going to be next? What's going to happen next? Swami mentions that in here. Maybe you were a greedy investor and you had that life and you just ruined people. So, so it's hard to say what the reality of anything is. So we have to, and Swami puts in here again, You know, we have to think in terms of reincarnation. That this is just the flow and this is what's going to happen. And we think of a life as such a long time, but I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to realize how very short a life is, really. And even though you th- think when it's happening, it's never going to end, Swamiji said, the reason we think hell is eternal is because when we're suffering, we think it's never going to end, but it always ends. I remember when a friend of mine was going through, I mean, his, it was the most dramatic karma of the year award by just like miles and miles. It was just terrible, everything in his life. His wife was dying and he was losing all his money and his reputation. Everything was just a mess. It was terrible. And he said to Swamiji, you know, just like, what? What can I even? How can I even think about this? And Swami said the only thing he could think of to say to him was, "All karma ends." Meaning that even though you think it'll never end, it will. And of course, it did, and everything went on. And sometimes, when you're looking at someone, it's just it's an illusion of time. And he, he he's not crippled. I mean, he might be crippled in his consciousness, but he isn't really crippled. I had that experience when I was giving a Sunday service at Ananda Village, and there was, the, there was such an unusual energy right back there at the back left rows. And when I finished the service, I was walking out, and there, was, there were two rows of, um, what is whatever the politically correct term is, but me- people of not normal minds that are mentally deficient. And it was I think it was just like a field trip. They were going and visiting different interesting places. But it was so interesting to me because there was such a distinctly different vibration in that corner of the room. And I hadn't seen them come in and I couldn't see them clearly enough to know what it was. But when I got close, I realized, oh, all of you people have a very different vibration. But what was so interesting to me, I realized that not one of them was really different in their soul. They had broken brains. They were born into body with broken brains. So their consciousness could only manifest to a certain extent. And, but their consciousness was not different. There's a, a, a person at uh, the YMCA from the Kano's group, which is an a, adult people who are not don't have full mental capacity. And she cleans the ladies, um, more or less clean. She hangs out in the ladies' locker room. And her, she has this voice which is the epitome of thwarted entitlement... That's the sound of her voice. Her voice is always talking, or even if it's not the subject, but the sound of her voice is always that she deserves a lot more than she ever gets of positive things, that somehow the world never really recognizes her worth and gives her what she really needs and really deserves. And she, in a very loud voice. She makes sure that the whole locker room is aware of that pretty much on a steady basis. And I ask myself, did she develop that attitude after she was born into the body where the brain didn't work? Or did she get the brain that didn't work because she just had such an attitude of that? So now she just gets to play it out farther and farther. So it's, you can be helpful to people because it's no, it's no bigger a delusion. I mean, also this sense of delicacy that we have. <gasps> oh, this man doesn't have a leg, oh, he doesn't have an arm, oh, we're just so nervous about this. What difference does it make? His soul is just the same, and he's got some tough karma. You know, it's, it's um, a friend of mine once became ill. It was very interesting to watch how all the relatives related to the illness. Um, you know, it was an unpleasant illness. She required a lot of personal help. And, you know, some of her friends and relatives just moved right into it. You know, they weren't afraid to touch her. They weren't afraid to be close to her. They weren't afraid to lift her in and out of bed. They just did whatever was needed. Others kind of huddled, you know, off in the corner. And they would sort of watch and, can I bring you a glass of water? You know, like that. (laughs) But it's just like, why be afraid of it? Just move right into it. And the extent to which you are afraid of it, you're talking about yourself. You're talking about your relationship with God. That's why people... Take care of lepers. Because you're just moving right into that fear. You're moving right into that aversion. You just walk right up close to it. And so it's very, just watch yourself. What do you shrink from? Why do I shrink from this? What 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 about this frightens me? And what does that tell me about me? It doesn't mean that you can't weep. Because compassion is different than fear. I, I know Chittenbar will remember this. Maybe you remember it, Tom, too. Some of the others... In Varanasi, when we would go into the old part of the city, because we went back to these places after several years, and we were 30 Americans, and we were a very conspicuous group. In fact, once we got separated from one another, and I said, I wonder where Durga is, and some total stranger, this little child, says, oh, she's already gotten on the bus. (laughs) I said, how did you know? And well, everybody in the market knows Durga, you know, because they all knew us. Durga being American, even though she had that name. But there was a beggar in that market, was nothing but a torso. You know, your body can get down to a torso. He, he had arms. He didn't have legs. He was, a, he was a tiny, tiny person, head and just this part of his torso and arms. So he was on this little thing with wheels that he would push along with his hands. Did he have hands? I think he, yeah, he, did. I think he had hands. And he was about this high off the ground. And, you know, we were helping everybody we could help, especially in those early trips. And he would hang out sort of at the, the same place. We would, we forgot to give him money, most of us. He had such the most beautiful smile, the most radiant countenance that would just be like, oh, hello, so nice to see you. You know, we've come over here, it's nice to see you again, and we'd just go off to the bus and somebody would think, did you give him money? I mean, it didn't even cross our minds. But of course, that's why he was there. But you see one example of a person like that, and you realize, oh, it's always a choice, isn't it? It's always a choice. You think circumstances are dictating it, but it's not. It's always a choice. And somebody's making, saint. pardon me, he, yeah, he, that man, either he was a saint before he started or he, he took it in the right way. Whatever it was that was, you know, he was a saintly man. You felt blessed just walking by I mean, him. He was, he was at your ankles. Imagine living that close to the ground in the city of Varanasi and that close to everyone's feet. I mean, it can't have been pleasant, but he, was, he had just transcended it. And those are the examples you have to keep in mind. And this man is either Really, it's really payback time for him, which is, hooray, look, he must have felt great remorse because it's really hitting him hard right now. And now he gets to learn. Or look at this man, he gets to become a saint. It's, it's just all in how you turn it. Okay? And just to touch this, because this is really right out of what we've been saying, um, moodiness, first is what he talked about, Moodiness is a temptation of Satan, and moodiness is when the sort of calm equanimity, which is our true nature, just gets sucked into one thing or another. We tend to think of moodiness as a state of sadness and personal despair. But Swamiji also just talks about it. It's a level of consciousness, the way we're talking about it now, from a certain perspective where... I am separate from you and all of us are separate from creation and God is nice to him, but he's not nice to any of the rest of us, that's a certain level of consciousness and a whole set of delusions will follow from that. And moodiness is one of them because, you know, there's, we just don't know what's happening. We have a reason to be sad. Everything affirms our anger, our despair. And Swamiji says you can't reason yourself out of it. Because once you're in that attitude, you just, everything supports it. Everything that you think of supports it. All the, you have this long list of all the things that everybody ever said that was bad, and all this long list of all the terrible things that happen in the world. And anybody who's standing in that, it's not a joke, but they just spin and spin and spin and spin. And Swami just says the only way to do it is to lift your consciousness conscientiously to the spiritual eye. It's sort of like part of what the satanic, and he uses that word, moods are from Satan, part of the satanic delusion is that the mood itself persuades you that you have to take it seriously, that you can't dismiss it. I mean, it, haven't you noticed that when people sort of get into those moods? They, they kind of get mad at you if you try to take them out of it. And there is a certain, and he, he says it straight out, it's so he doesn't mince words, there's a certain enjoyment in it. I mean, I, I'm not in, that inclined toward moods, but I've hit them every once in a while. And you sort of fall into it, and you kind of don't want to leave it. It has, it has real attraction. You have to, again, you have to save some part of yourself that says, wait a minute, there's an alternative to this. The al- and pleasant as this seems, the alternative is, is, is really much more pleasant. I felt the last two times I went to Ananda Village... I mean, I've sort of tried to justify it on one way or another, but both times I fell into a sad mood. And the obvious reason why I would do that is because my, is, I'm so, so, it's so associated in my mind with Swami Kriyananda. But completely out of the blue, both times, I was there. The first time was much worse. This time was, was pretty mild. But I just all of a sudden just felt this mood come on me. And the first time it came on me, I could sort of, I could sort of see. It was like, I don't know, I'm just going to be sad. But the second time it came on me, this time, I could—I just knew, just go somewhere and get into a better vibe. And I just went out and put more energy into breaking it than I did the first time, and I dissipated it much faster. It it lurked, though. I felt it lurking. It was like a force. It was just like this force that was lurking. And if you have to, you have to fight it all the time. Just, there's no way around it. And he says, he, he always says this, because Master said it, Moodiness is the fruit of self, uh, sense indulgence in past lives. That you just, I, it, yeah, if you have an inclination toward moodiness, it's because in the past you, you were indulged, you were pushing toward enjoyment too much of the time. I mean, the opposite side of overindulgence in, in sensual experiences is a sense of, of sadness and despair and exhaustion. And that, oh, it's just also not worth it. You know, that's sort of the libertine's lament into his beer at the end, you know. It's like it's just what is it all worth after all, you know? And somehow or another that's how you pay that back. I mean you, you cannot break you just cannot break the laws of the divine and then just sneak right through and think it's never gonna catch up with you. You just there are we're made a certain way and if we work against our own divinity That's the problem with the revolt. That's really the big problem with the revolt is it doesn't work. If the revolt worked, we could all do it. We could all just say, I'm just going to declare, this is pleasurable, this feels good. The short-term satisfaction of this is marvelous. The egoic pleasure of this is terrific. You know, this makes me feel really comfortable. And then just live that way. But that's where all the masters say to us, look at the fruits. That's what Jesus is simple advice. What are the fruits of this way of living? Somebody asked me, you know, about using drugs to have spiritual experiences. And uh, because some of us grew up in that culture, we know I had this, I'll tell you, a very funny experience. At the Ananda meditation retreat just recently, just in the last few days, somebody just looked us up on the internet and came up there to have a retreat. His idea of a retreat was not exactly ours. He got high on drugs and then went and lay down in the temple and put on his boombox. And it was just, it was not at all what they wanted at the meditation retreat, right? So staff members had to speak to him about this. He was just, you know, we're not really criticizing your path. It's just you're in the wrong place, my friend. So um, he was one of those people who made a big distinction between drugs and mushrooms. Exactly, right? So he was talking to one of the staff persons about mushrooms. And, and so that you, the guy said, well, it's probably, you know, all of you guys are against it probably just had bad experiences on mushrooms. And the staff person talking to me said, no, actually, my experiences were quite good. <laughs> but uh, it's not a real path. It's not a path for me now. But the problem with it, you see, is it, with, with using mind-altering substances as a substitute for actual sadhana is because you begin to define the path in terms of what you can get and how quickly and easily you can get it. And that's the problem. I mean, of course, there's a whole lot of other problems, such as it wreaks havoc on your brain, but that's something else. But it wreaks havoc on your attitude because you begin to think that the spiritual path is about what I can get, how fast and easily I can get it. And look, I'm having these great experiences. That must mean I'm spiritual. Well, no, not exactly. That's not the definition. But you see, moodiness comes from breaking these laws. You just go out there and try to take and try to take, take sensual experiences, be irresponsible in the use of your own energy and your own attitudes or you um, drink or whatever the things that you do. Just sooner or later, the, the sheer impossibli- impossibility of finding true satisfaction through that path, causes your energy to begin to sink. And the the effort to have a high all the time, however you're going to get it, leads to its inevitable opposite, which is the inclination to have a, a low all the time. And though that's what Swamiji says. And you have to just say, well, if I have an inclination this way, it's a battle I have to fight. This is the same question as the poor vet without his arms. Here I am, here my friend is. And you know, it. it's brain chemistry, but karma causes brain chemistry. I mean, how did your brain get chemicalized in that way? There was a point before that point. And so we just have to keep working against it. And it's not always a fast battle, and, but what choice do we have? Because as I was saying on Sunday, it's always now. And if you don't fight the battle now, you get to fight it later. A friend of mine who had a very short-lived marriage described his wife as having two attitudes. And he said, these are her words, my way now or my way later, he said. <laughs> that was basically her attitude, which I've always loved, because that's like karmic retribution now or karmic retribution later. There's no third option there. So we can take it really seriously, or we can, I mean, we, we can take it, and then this is the next point, leads to despair, we just become completely defeated by the circumstances of our lives, and Swami mentions even to the point of suicide, then all we have to do, all that we get for that effort is we just get to keep coming back. Swamiji writes here too that, which I I happen to mention this on Sunday also, the karma of suicide is that you get brought right back to that same point of despair, but you have to have the courage to go through it. I mean, to me that is a really good argument against suicide because it's very tempting and swamiji said also once you start sometimes it becomes a habit you know you just don't remember you just keep having this thought in your mind I'll just escape this i had a friend of mine have a friend and she just she was very moody and she was tended toward despair and in talking to me she talked about just how often she would think about suicide we were just having a little conversation in our apartment in the community or she was visiting from another state where she lives. And, she said, and we were just talking about something a little difficult, and she just said to me, she said, when you say that to me, she says, I have, I have to fight the urge to run into the other room and throw myself off the balcony. I thought, wow, what a world you live in. But you could sort of see that she was trying to come up from that. And success in this life was really to live to the end. You, know, you, just, you, can't, you can't measure another person's success or not. You can't say that merely because they're not a shining star in the firmament, they haven't had an absolutely victorious life. Because victory is simply to stand strong against whatever is assaulting you and to do your best in the face of it. And despair is really to completely disbelieve every spiritual truth that somehow... I alone am outside of the loving care of God. And it all weaves into the idea of karma and reincarnation too, you see, just right back to where we started. Because unless you really believe that things happen for a reason, and that reason has to do with cause and effect that I myself put into motion, and that the challenge that is being offered to me is just exactly the right size and exactly the right one. I mean, sometimes it's, it's really embarrassing to realize this is really where I am. <laughs> this is really, I have this picture of my mind of being this, you know, have, fighting these great battles and instead the battle is so crummy, just so little and so crummy. Once when I was really upset about just this enormous battle I had to fight and I was, I was, I was angry and I was sad and I was embarrassed It was all those things and it was all coming out as these upset tears. And Swamiji said, well, he said, better to know. He said, if you didn't know, you were just sailing along thinking you didn't have to deal with this. And now at least you know, that's the good news. It's like he just turned it immediately. For me, it was this sense of anguish, despair. And for him, it was just like, well, you get to work. Now you know, get to work. You know, the masters are so indifferent. That's what they're always saying. God doesn't really care. He doesn't care what you're doing or how you're doing. They've seen it all. You think we can surprise them? And, and what's, you know, it's even more just like freaky. is the only way I can say it. When it first occurred to me, you know, Jesus Christ, Master, Swami Kriyananda, Krishna, they didn't start as, as Jesus Christ, Master, or Krishna. They started, well, Master said he remembers being a diamond. How do you think about that? He remembers being a diamond. I mean, what did it feel like? And how long ago was that? (laughs) Swami said, in eternity, all time is nothing. So Master came all the way through and became a master. That was how he scolded his disciple. When the disciple... He was urging a task upon his disciple, and the disciple said, Well, you can do it, Master. You're a master. And Yogananda became very, very powerful. What do you think made me a master? He said it was by affirming strength, not weakness. But everything you're experiencing, they live through. I mean, they don't, they don't just empathize, they remember. Isn't that just, like, amazing? It takes away all sense of shame, all sense of guilt, all sense of hopelessness. Bowser says you go through it all. So wherever you're standing, wherever you're standing, Jesus Christ himself stood there. In some incarnation, it's the divine law he must have, and he got there from here. You know, it's really quite an, uh, empowering. Even if you're, i you know, at, on the edge of taking your own life, and I, I don't make light of that. If you're, even if you're right at that edge, even if you do take your own life, Jesus Christ stood there. He had to. Master said, "You don't learn except by going through it." I mean, it's just so. All of that just bo- literally boggles the mind it makes you f- understand you think of it as a a facade when master had that great samadhi in 1948 when he, for 3 days i think it was he was in this cosmic state of consciousness and he was talking to divine mother and and he was she was this is how he described it she was taking him all over the cosmos and he said things that the people around him heard like oh that's how you do it this is like, what on earth is he seeing? But sometimes you, you do wonder, like, how does she do it? How does she really run all of these different realities? And I was so charmed by the fact that Master was delighted to have it explained to him, or at least was playing out that uh, Lila for us. Isn't that interesting? But all of that is, you know, our moodiness, our despair, and then he talks about nervous agitation, agitated breathing, all of these things, we fall into these states of consciousness because of our past karma. And the only way to escape them is courageously right through the middle because the obstacles bring with them these states of mind. And and you just begin to see it. This is where, when I started with the Patanjali, this is where I was starting with it. Gosh, it just takes the whole path. It strips it right down to the skeleton. And all of the complexity that we lay on top of it, Patanjali just takes it all away. It's just straight. These are the obstacles. These are the problems that come with it. These are your enemies. Swami says, change your consciousness. I love that. I wrote, a, I wrote this letter once. I think Swami was talking about me when he did this, but I wrote a, a letter of advice, which, those that I was publishing. It was about fear, how to face your fears. Truthfully, when I read it over, it wasn't a very good letter. But... Uh, was way too convoluted. But I believe that was what Swami was referring to because he made some mention about somebody wrote this long piece of advice about fear, how to face your fears. He said, I don't have any fears. (laughs) Just like that. I don't know what the letter was about. He said, I don't have any fears. And I think he was responding, as I said when I reread it recently, I could see exactly what he was responding to. Don't give the subject so much energy. Just Look fear in the face, as Sri Yukteswar said, and just banish it forever. Don't let Satan draw you into this long conversation about it. Don't let him persuade you that it's so difficult. As he just says, just raise your consciousness, then it goes away. Five minutes, that's all it takes. Immediately you want to say, no, no, it takes more than that for me. But even if it does, that powerful just banishing of the darkness is something we should not repudiate, even if we can't quite go there. We should definitely not repudiate it, just hold it out there as a kind of wow that we know someday we're going to come to. And it makes everything in the present moment much less difficult to do. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and go on to the next one. We were having this conversation during the break, which is a conversation that we have iterations on it many times, but since I talk so much about karma, I think it has to be said again. Um, it was just the question about bad and good karma. Is there such a thing as bad karma and good karma? And it's, those are always difficult words. Common sense says that certain things are bad in the sense that they're unlucky, things do not flow harmoniously. And I would, I would say there's corrective karma, there's affirming karma. The best word is that all karma is appropriate. And bad is in the eye of the beholder. Is it... Is it um, uh, Saranya was speaking of Christina Onassis, who I didn't really realize that she ended up committing suicide. She was you know, heir to this enormous fortune and ended up taking her own life. I mean, can, it's just so hard for it to imagine. Suicide happens more often among wealthy people because they have everything that is supposed to make them happy, and when they're not happy, they have no place to go from there. One of the reasons that um, a movement like Self-Realization, our path, doesn't attract a lot of people who are on the, the lower side of the economic scale is because we're talking about, you know, deliberately and consciously releasing attachment to the things of this world, and people who are still imagining that they're going to be much happier when they have a few things of this world just think that a teaching like this is nuts just doesn't make any sense to them at all all of us who are drawn to this it's because in this life or in other lives we've had that experience and we know that it's it's not going to make it work for it's not going to work for us either just what i was saying about jesus christ having stood in our shoes we we've had that opportunity that's why it's good karma in the bhagavad gita it says to be born into a wealthy family because you don't have any illusions about what wealth will give you It's not because wealth is good, per se, it's because it takes away the illusion that wealth will give you happiness, and therefore you don't have to spend a whole incarnation trying to get it. You just have it right from the start, you know what it'll bring you, and it's easier then to go on to more important things. But the question that Saranya was also asking me about is the the yogic equivalent of saying, you're gonna be damned to hell for all eternity, is saying, you have bad karma That's sort of the same condemning sort of words. That wouldn't have happened to you except that you have such bad karma or this person has bad karma because he's suffering like that. And it's a sort of complicated thing because on one hand, you really have to own the reality of your own past mistakes. Whether you um, consciously know them, you don't have to parade them in front of everyone, you don't have to dwell in them or stew in them, but nor can you be afraid to face the obvious fact that I, you know I wouldn't be having all these problems, I wouldn't be constantly thwarted in my efforts in this particular area, if I wasn't working out something, if there wasn't something behind me that wasn't exactly in balance and now it's trying to balance itself out. I I have been a very you know forceful, often sharp, sharply. in my conversation with people for most of my life. So, gee, every once in a while, someone does not take my feelings into account. What a surprise, you know? And they'll just completely treat me very, very badly. But I never think of it as at all unjustified, even if it comes out of the clear blue sky, seemingly, because I know perfectly well that I sowed those seeds. And worse. Now, to just say that is a, is a way of saying, well, I haven't always been a nice person. Look at Swami Kriyananda. I mean, as if he were there because he said it sitting right there. Remember when... I'm going to just... I'm going to hold that. Remember when Swamiji was here for a smaller satsang and we were blessing him at the end and we were all... There was like you know, 300 people in the room and I stood up and I said... Visualize Swamiji, and he said, You don't have to visualize me, I'm sitting right here. He <laughs> so I said, Visualize Swami surrounded by light. <laughs> but anyway, Swami said, Think how often Swamiji has said, Oh, yes, I was very advanced in the past. Bhrigu said, I had attained Shanti in my vrittis, which means at least Sabakalpa Samadhi complete peace of the vrittis. That means that everything is stilled. I attained peace in my vrittis, but then I argued with my guru and I fell from that high state and and I've had to wander, Brighu said to him, the sage Brigu said, until uh, Yogananda, this incarnation with Yogananda. Now everything is balanced. But listen to that. You know, I, I was very, very advanced spiritually and then I defied, I argued with my guru and I was just, thrown off course, and I wandered for incarnations. It's like when somebody says, oh, I don't want someone to know, you know, that I missed my kriyas last night and that I I just watched a video. It's like... (laughs) Let's get a proportional view on this. I I remember once when, when Ananda was very, very small, and we were only Ananda village... And Swami Kriyananda was the only one who gave Kriya initiations. So this would have been the late 70s, the early 80s. It was very early. And he gave Kriya infrequently, and everybody who lived there came together. The, the reality of Ananda Village at that time is... I mean, it, talk about fishbowl. I mean, we all lived there in, in very close proximity to each other. We, could, we knew everybody who lived there. Nobody had automobiles for the most part. I mean, we always knew where each other was. There was no margin... Here in Palo Alto, you can drive off the property and nobody has any idea where you are. There it was like that. So there was a Kriya and one man didn't come. The next morning, Swamiji said, I don't know, call him and find out why he didn't come on Swami's behalf. I called him up. Did I? Could I have phoned him? We didn't have telephones. How could I have called him? So I must have gone to see him. I said, Swami asked why you weren't at the Kriya last night. He said, I just didn't feel like bowing down to the gurus. Perfectly honest answer. I went back and reported it to Swami. Swami said, I can understand that. Just like that. Just as easy as can be. Okay. You know, it wasn't like the best decision in the world, but I can understand it. That was before he wrote the festival, but you were in the stage of revolt. I get that. Just takes you nowhere. Because it's bad enough, this is how I think about it, it's bad enough that in this life, or yesterday, or this morning, or a thousand years ago, you set all this dissonant energy in motion, let's not also be ashamed of it. Because being ashamed of it, you see, is an entirely different problem. One is just the impartial working out of karma. I was idiotic. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It was a really bad idea. I'm glad I'm not that stupid anymore. That's just a fact. I had shanti in my vrittis and I argued with my guru and so I wandered for several thousand years until I met Yogananda... It's not a pretty story, but, well, if that's the story, that's the story. What can we say? If we say, oh, I had Shanti my vrittis, and I argued with my guru, and now I dare not hold my head up, and then you have like a whole second, pardon me, it's so hard. I mean, did you all hear Diva at Spiritual Renew? He gave us a new, he was talking about coming out of a long meditation. I think this was from Michael Gornick, actually. And they were just so blissful from this long meditation. And then Daiva started talking about some conditions of his life. And Michael said, Let the whining begin. (laughs) (laughs) And that's... There you are. Karma is always appropriate. You can... It's okay to complain as long as you know you're just complaining. Swamiji often would make fun of wrong attitudes. We it was so often we would just play with wrong attitudes. Oh, there's no bananas left in the house. What will I do without a banana? You know, you just go really hard and to the place that you might be tempted to go seriously. So that when it's gonna happen seriously you don't go there. There was a woman friend of mine, bless her soul. She had a very very romantic attitude toward life. Very romantic. Swami actually sang all of Ah, Sweet Mystery of Life to her. You know, but he sang it just like way over the top. You know, just like making such a mockery out of it. That Was that the song? Or maybe it was some other more schmaltzy song because that's rather pretty. But just some schmaltzy love song. He sang the whole song, not to her, not as if it was a romantic song, but just sang it in such a way that if you'd ever allowed yourself, even for a second, to go into the mood of that song, you would never touch it again. Because <laughs> just carry it on. like what. And it's a, it's a good thing to do when you're upbeat, to, to mimic an attitude that when you're a little lower down, you might actually do seriously. So that you can hear it, what it really sounds like. You know, because all karma is appropriate, whatever comes to us. I asked Swamiji once about a very difficult situation. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I said. He said, It's absolutely neutral. Whether it becomes good or bad is entirely depends on what you do with it from this point forward. So there's that man who lost his limbs. That's where we started. And wow, that is challenging karma. But it wouldn't have happened to him if all if everything wasn't aligned up perfectly, just imagine how many conditions had to align up just exactly so. You know, even for whatever the injury was, for him to get the right medical care, sufficiently not to just exit the body, a thousand things. And how do you know that he didn't have the choice to live or die? I know a friend of mine who now, who got his leg amputated, he was a, he's a, now he's in the Paralympics, he's winning gold medals in the Paralympics. He was a guess he was 17, and he was a professional skateboarder, really, really, really talented, riding his motorcycle a block from home, lady who was slightly inebriated, crossed over and just clipped him like that, just completely smashed up his leg. And he's lying there, this is what he said later, he's lying there on the pavement, and he's just bleeding out on on the pavement. And it was like, wow, I could just go, you know, it'd be really easy to go now. And, you know, he could see that he wasn't going to have a, a bottom part of his leg. Wow, I could just go. He just lay there for a while and thought about it. I don't, think, I don't think he really went to the angels or anything. It was much more just, hmm, no, I don't think I'm finished. And then when they took him to the hospital, he said, I'm an athlete. You've got to leave my knee. <laughs> and so they took his leg just below his knee. They saved his knee for him. And now he, with his prosthesis, he's snowboarding and skateboarding and winning gold medals in that, the Paralympic side, and just, it's all a choice. If it's a choice for them, it's a choice for me. It's a choice for you. See, that's the thing, that's the scary part. And that's, you see, that's why it all strings together. If it's, their karma is also appropriate and neutral, oh my God, that means mine must be too. You know, and maybe yours is not nearly so dramatic. Maybe it's just an inclination toward moodiness, a tendency toward despair, a little bit of agitated breathing, you know, every now and then. But it's appropriate. Okay, any thoughts or questions? More? Mm -hmm. You have to do the microphone. Otherwise it's a big blank spot on the recording. So in... Another part of my life, my um, one of my husbands mm-hmm. uh, was in an automobile accident, became a paraplegic. Oh so, is goodness. that his karma or mine that ha- I had to then support him and he and and stay till he healed? I mean, yeah. Whoa. Whoa. Um, of course, it was his karma and yours. Mm-hmm. I mean, the answer to that question is obviously all karma is appropriate. So it was his karma to be injured, and your karma to get to. Who knows? Maybe you had been his disabled child in a previous incarnation, and he had to care for you, and you owed him. You owed him that. I kind of felt that way. Like mm-hmm. I owed him. Yeah, or maybe, oh. maybe you uh, abandoned him at a certain point, mm-hmm. in his hour of need, and you went gallivanting off with some younger Romeo, and just turned aside on your responsibilities. You know, any, you can make up any story that you like, but there's a whole lot of them. You just find the one... I, sometimes apocryphal stories are helpful. Mm-hmm. Maybe if it isn't true, it really sh- certainly could be true. Mm-hmm. And it fits the circumstances. Yeah, absolutely nothing happens without without So I very... finished that karma then, right? Yes, let's say <laughs> that you have. That's good. Yeah. Well, at least... You've progressed it as far as you can progress it. I was in... Make sure the mic's off because it gets an echo thing. Um, I was in a difficult relationship situation and um, I I had to walk away from it. And Swamiji said to me, well, maybe the karma is over. And he let that just hang in the air for like about five seconds. But I don't think so, he said. <laughs> But he said, you just can't take it any farther in this incarnation. He said, just shelve it and just go go where you go with the flow in another direction. And he said, and you know, it'll come back. You'll work it out. You don't necessarily have to work it out directly with that person, but whatever it represents, you, you'll get to work it out. So I, I had a woman come to me once, very complicated relationship karma, and she wanted me to tell her how to finish the karma. It was like, "Are you kidding me?" You know, because it was so interwoven with a thousand things, but you can progress it by the way that you deal with it, and you just progress it as far as you can progress it. And then if it comes back to you, then you know, it's a spiral staircase. That's the, the picture that people have to realize. We think of karma as being like a, a pole, and the stripes are horizontal if you could think of it like that. And so you gradually ascend, you're finished with that one, you're finished with this one, you're finished with this one, you're finished with this one. That's not how it actually... It's a pole, all right, but the stripes are vertical. And the stripes are also wider, and then they get really, really skinny, and then they get really wide again, and then they wiggle. And But if you look at it, and then eventually they, some of them do taper off into nothing, but it's a very interesting and not at all linear organized it's a vertical pole with all these stripes of karma and our incarnations are a spiral stairway going around it so which is to say that you're like walking around like the maypole like this and so you pass a certain stripe my husband gets hit by a car and he's a paraplegic and you live in that stripe for a while you you progress like this and then you get to the edge of it and then all of a sudden That karma drops away, either because the incarnation ends or in this life you finished it. Then you're in another stripe. And maybe that's a little teeny stripe, and then you're in another and another. But you see, what happens is you come back around and then you hit that same stripe. Maybe this time it's not, it doesn't have to be even with that man, and it doesn't have to be exactly the same. But whatever lesson you were learning, you'll meet it again, but it will have progressed. It'll be more subtle. Maybe it's taking responsibility, having compassion, sticking with duty when you don't want to, being cheerful in the face of obstacles, whatever however you would call it, you just come back around and you meet it. I mean, and karma can repeat anywhere on that pole, too. It always makes me extremely nervous when people say, well, I've learned that lesson, I'm finished with that, because you don't know. yeah. Now, it isn't over, So, but now you're sailing around a pole like this, and who knows when you'll find it again, or what it'll look like. The next time you meet it, it just might be hair. And you just, whoop, you just go right by it before you even know it. But later on, it might be half the pole again. So that's, it's always appropriate, and all karma eventually peters out, and you're free. But whatever it is, you welcome it with enthusiasm. Jesus says, if they strike you on one tree- cheek, you turn to them the other. If they ask for your coat, you offer them your cloak. And what he's actually saying there is that you step into it. And that Swamiji explained that so beautifully. When somebody hits you, everybody steps back. You know, you, 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 you try to flinch from the karma that's come to you. Jesus says, you step into it. And you invite more of it. Because if it's going to come to me, why would I run away from it? It's just like, yeah, you, you, don't re- you don't rebel against it. That's what I was saying about watching my friend and her relatives. Some people stepped right into what they had to deal with. And other people thought that maybe if I just hunker back here, it'll go away. And that's strike on one on cheek, take it on the other. And G- even Jesus in his own life, when they tell the fabulous story of him being in the garden of gethsemane and the roman cohort comes to arrest him and he knows what's about to happen his disciples are shocked but he knows what's coming and they say and and then they say jesus said who are you seeking and then the bible says and he stepped forward very you know there's, the bible's short but when you picture it this armed guard is crashing in and he's been praying all night with his band of disciples. I mean, just think if we're all standing here and a group of armed policemen come shooting in from the back of the room looking for Chittinbar, not for me. Okay? (laughs) But they're coming for him, right? I mean, what's the tendency going to be? Everybody's going to just pull back. And all his disciples pulled back. Jesus stepped forward. You know, his destiny was coming to him and he went right out to meet it. And then what they say in the Bible is, the power of him stepping forward knocked the soldiers to the ground. He didn't touch them. He just stepped into that karma and they fell over backwards. What a picture. It's an amazing picture, but it's also symbolic. When you meet your karma head-on, I was speaking about that on Sunday, when you meet it at the crest, you give more energy right to it and it goes away. And speaking of fear, Sri Yukteswar tells that story. I mean, how many stories did Sri Teshwar tell about his young life? When I was a child, my mother told me that there was a ghost in the closet because she didn't want me to go to that closet. So I ran downstairs and I opened the door, but there was no ghost. And my mother never told me another tale again. Moral of the story, look fear in the face and it will cease to trouble you. Wow, that's really impressive just as a child. But you know, there it is. There's so few pages in the autobiography, so few stories, and it's just right there. Look fear in the face, and it will cease to trouble you. Mother never tried that trick on me again. So even if you contemplate that man, the paraplegia, the things that you had to face, the extent to which we say, oh God, no, no, never again, you may say, well, if we can work this out some other way, that would be nice. It's perfectly fair to have an opinion. I mean, that's you need to be honest. But you can't dictate because you don't know what's appropriate. If there's more to learn, well, maybe I'll learn it. I remember one friend who had to deal with a very annoying person who was in the habit of repeating himself really often and somewhat tedious in his manner. And every time he became tedious and repetitious, she would just say, Well, I guess there's something about this that I haven't learned yet. She so would just settle in. Just try to just rest in the heart. Just settle in. I guess there's something I haven't learned yet. If it's happening to you, you can be pretty darn certain that there's something in it for you or else it wouldn't be happening to you. It would just go away. Somebody, how can you tell what your, what your dharma is? Someone asked. Swami said, well, if it needs doing and you're next in line, that's all the energy he gave to that. If it comes to you, you can count on it. Well, any other questions or thoughts before we call it a night? We made it all the way through 1.31. So tomorrow is, no, there's no tomorrow. I'm going to be out of town for three weeks. So the next, um, for three Tuesdays. Is that right? (laughs) So it's the last Tuesday in September, that would be the next one, yeah. I'll be in India with Shivani, helping to get, finding happiness established and promoted and distributed and endorsed and that'd be fun. I'll tell you how busy I've been. I'm looking forward to a 16 hour plane ride. <laughs> I said to David "This is. I think this is really pathetic. <laughs> I'm eager to get on the airplane and fly to Dubai. Oh my gosh. So are meet with, uh, movie people or... There's a uh, the over. there's a woman in a, one of in our congregation in Gorgon, who is herself a movie director who has initiated a film festival, she's introduced us to a distributor. We have other friends who are who are very prominent in various indian circles and Shivani's we arrive at two in the morning and at noon on that same day because Shivani by herself her own admission is crazy when it comes to schedules, but i'm just going to go with her and we're showing the movie to several people who may be able to Show us because they haven't seen it yet. Be able to introduce us. Her hope is, and I hope we're successful, is to leave India with some well-known names endorsing the movie that we can then make into publicity and with di- distribution contracts and so on, and, and some clarity about this film festival. And I'm I'm blissfully not in charge. I just not at all in charge. She's in charge, and I I will support her and. We work very well together and I will be very helpful to her but I don't have to know anything. Which tells you about the last few weeks. Okay. okay. So I'll, I'll be back in two and a half weeks, three weeks. Thank you all very much. Pleasure to see you.